The following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. How are you now? Uh, I'm fine. Another doctor's appointment this week. Are we going to talk about your penis again? Yes, we are. Uh, well, a little further up the... Up the chain? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I have an appointment with a super specialist today, and we're going to figure out what to do about my right kidney, the one that has the giant kidney stone in it. Oh, right. Because we're going to have to go in and get it, so I'm going for all kinds of imaging on Wednesday afternoon, and then we'll set a surgery date, I think, and then uh, we'll get this thing out. On the topic of penis, I've got a bit of a problem in that department. <laughs> You've come to the right place. What well, what it is is um, I'm launching a new documentary series that I on your penis. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't That'll talk. That'll be a- short. Oh. Live from Studio 3B. Now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes, Spotify, and GeoCities. This is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guests Sting. Hey, stop licking down there. What is going on down no, there? There's the dog that she's, she's licking her paw. Oh. The day the music burned, more than 10 years ago, the masters of some of the world's most prolific musicians were destroyed, and we're only finding out about it today. We'll look at what the loss of 500,000 tracks means to the industry. Taylor Swift is playing the oh poor me victim again. We'll tell you why she should accept the royalty checks and just shut up. Stop (laughs) complaining. Plus, the date for our live on location show. Ladies and gentlemen, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Okay, I'm going to uh, make a guess here in that you're going to need a slight musical interlude. I would suggest that you use the song Detachable Penis by King Missile. King Missile's Detachable Penis is one of my all-time favorite novelty songs. I'm not sure it's a novelty song. I you think, don't it's, think a, it's a novel. You think it's like a regular? Like, sure, yeah, you played it on CFNY, but do you think CHFI and the soccer moms were bopping to King Missile? I woke up this morning with a bad hangover, and my penis was missing again. This happens all the time. It's detachable. This comes in handy a lot of the time. I can leave it home when I think it's going to get me in trouble, or I can rent it out when I don't need it. But now and then I go to a party, get drunk, and the next morning I can't, for the life of me, remember what I did with it. First I looked around my apartment and I couldn't find it, so I called up the place where the party was, they hadn't seen it either. I asked them to check the medicine cabinet, because for some reason I leave it there sometimes, but not this time. So I told them if I don't think that qualifies it as a novelty song, I think it's about a poor man who had a very bad experience after a party. My favorite part about that song is that it's not really sung, it's spoken. The whole thing, yeah. Yeah, that was really quite unusual. The, the other one to do it at about the same time was Marin Cadell's The Sweater. Yes. Which, you know, because in high school I never had a date. I didn't have a date until after university, basically. Mm. Um I, I didn't know that that was sort of a, a cultural thing where the the girl borrows a boy's piece of clothing and then never returns it. I didn't either because I was in more or less the same dating boat as you. <laughs> Full circle back to the penis conversation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Girls, 
I know you will understand this and feel the intrinsic incredible emotion. You have just pulled over your head the worn, warm sweater belonging to a boy. Now you haven't had a passionate kissing session or anything, but you got to go on a camping trip with him and eight other people from school. And you practically slept together, your sleeping bag right next to his. And you woke in the night to watch him as he slept, but you couldn't see anything because it was dark, so you just lay there and listened to his breathing and wondered if your heart might burst. The sweater has that slightly goat-like smell which all teenage boys possess, and that smell will lovingly transfer to all your other clothes. If you get to keep it for a few days, you can sleep with it, but don't let your mom see because she'll say, what is that filthy thing and who does it belong besides the trash man? The day the music burned. Okay, I have a feeling that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about things like master tapes today, and there's a lot of stuff that we can talk about. So you start, and let me see what I can do. Vanessa Azoli at KeeksandBeats.com reports on the New York Times recent expose that it could possibly be the most devastating cover-up of the music industry. Back in 2008, there was a massive fire at Universal Music, and we didn't really know about the full impact of the, that fire until now. Hundreds of thousands of original master recordings were obliterated, leaving many well-known artists uh, at a loss. And, and it's not just modern-day musicians, but unreleased music from musicians going back, you know, Etta James, Duke Ellington, Judy Garland, Bing Crosby, Louis Armstrong. Al Jolson. Al Jolson, right. Merle Haggard, Sammy Davis Jr. A newer man, Bojangles in. He danced for you In worn-out shoes With silver hair, a ragged shirt And baggy pants He would do the old soft shoe They all had their music in this vault, which was called Building 6197 at Universal Music Group. And what I didn't know about Universal Music Group is that uh, uh, Vanessa points out that not only is it the biggest record label in the world, but it is literally double the size of its biggest competitor. Oh, at least, yes. And that's Sony Music. Yes. So back in 2008, we learned that there had been a fire, but at the time, they kept it quiet. This was at Universal Studios Hollywood, and a fire broke out in a backlot area, you might remember the story where part of the iconic town hall. The courthouse. The courthouse that's seen in Back to the Future. 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 That was damaged in that fire. There was another thing called the Hong Kong or the King Kong experience which was also damaged in that fire. Now, on the same lot was this building. And at the time when it was torched, we were told that, oh, there's just some few, you know, a few video artifacts and a couple of tapes and there's nothing, nothing to worry about, nothing to see here. Nothing dating back to the late 1940s. No, but Universal, after a little while, we've seen the internal documents, realized that this was a disaster of epic proportions. And they did what you would do in a disaster, which is to seek some kind of insurance settlement. And they managed to sue and get $150 million in restitution. Uh, the problem is they didn't tell anybody, including the artists whose master tapes were destroyed. Now, let's, let's talk about what master tapes are. Master tapes are the ultimate product 
of a recording session, whether it be a song or an album. They are the mixed down final versions of that recording session. Whoa, hang on. Mixed down versions? I assumed that the master tapes were the ones with the multi-track individual tracks that were not mixed down such that you could go back to them at some point in the future. Back to the future? Remix them or isolate audio because you want to just isolate the vocal track or a drum track or something. These are the mixed down versions? Right. Now, the multi-track tapes are a completely different thing. A lot of those were also destroyed in the fire, but the big loss were these master tapes. These are the Ur records. These are the uh, Ur recordings that, that... What do you mean Ur? Hmm? What do you mean Ur recordings? Well, like, like, like that's, that's what we talk about when we talk about ancient times, like Ur, the city in Iraq. You are. Look it up. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm making... <laughs> they are the beginning. They are the, 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 uh, the absolute utter original. Uh from which all other copies, whether they be digital or physical, are made. Ur was an important Sumerian city-state in ancient Mesopotamia, located on the site of modern uh, Iraq. See? 1853 was the la was the first time they excavated. Right, it's considered to be one of the first cities in the world. Okay, now I understand. In, in history. Thank you. These master tapes are destroyed. They don't tell the artists. And some artists had figured out that something was weird. Brian Adams talks about wanting to go back and get one of his records one of his sets of master tapes for a reissue of one of his albums. Okay, now, so so this is what I'm talking about. Is is wouldn't you, if you were to reissue a track, the master wouldn't be the the mixed down version. It would be the non mixed version, so that you could remix it any way you wanted to. Well, no, that's that's for something else. Those are the multi track tapes. The master is something that you would go back to, and you could you can take it and tart it up with modern technology to make it sound better. There's still things that you can do to a, a master. But wouldn't you rather do that to the multi-track version? Yes, you would. Okay. But that's not what we're talking about. Right no, now. I realize that, but I'm just fascinated by this whole uh, this whole industry. Well, what you would do with, with the master tapes is you would tart them up whatever you could with modern technology, and there's probably some tracks there that were never put on the album uh, that were relegated to B-sides or were single non-album singles or something like that. So when you want to go back to do a reissue, a box set, or something like that, you go to the master tapes. That's where you find everything. If you want to do a remix or a remaster, well, then you have to go back to the multi-track tapes. Ah, okay. In each case, in either case, these tapes were lost in the fire. And there's so many. I have a list of 800 artists that saw their stuff lost. Including, as you point out, a quite a few Canadian major bands. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Along with Nirvana and Nine Inch Nails and Hole and Soundgarden and, you know, a ton of others. And a $100 million lawsuit has been filed uh, because A, Universal didn't uh, advise the artists of the loss, and B, Universal didn't cut the artists in 
on the insurance settlement of $150 million. Would they have been entitled to it? I would have assumed that the master recordings would be owned by the record label, which sort of brings us back to that whole Taylor Swift scooter thing. Let's hold on to that for just a second. <laughs> Put a pin in that. Put a, put a pin. So yes, they would be owned by the record labels, but there, if you look at the the text of the lawsuit, like I did, uh, there are allegations in there that the uh, record labels ha had um, violated their responsibility of keeping these tapes safe, and as a result, the artists have. Um, grounds to to sue them for negligence what a difficult position universal music finds itself in when it comes to storing that kind of material because as we know over time magnetic tape deteriorates so you'd want to keep it in a very specific climate controlled environment yes and it, it sounds like that wasn't happening at all in the first place well, it doesn't because, and, and there was another thing to worry about between 1996 and I think it was 96 and 2000, there was a five-year period where the glue that was used by one of the major manufacturers, the glue to keep the magnetic particles on the celluloid, celluloid tape uh, was faulty and it dried out extra quickly. Oh, God. And those tapes were, that were made in that five-year period were... Um, considered to be extra vulnerable to things like humidity and heat and, and drying out. Which, in a related note, people backed up their lives onto compact discs, CD-ROM, and for the longest time. Like, now you, you can't buy a computer with a CD-ROM drive, but you guaranteed know that there are vaults somewhere around the world that have a bunch of compact discs in them. And what people don't realize is that the material necessary to make compact discs possible over time breaks down. Yes. They, they, they just, the safest thing, the two safest things for storing data, mm -hmm. vinyl records, because plastic takes a very long time to degrade, and microfilm, because again, it's on plastic. But so long as both of those mediums are stored in a climate-controlled environment. And yes, again, vinyl, you have to make sure that it's nice and dry. So it doesn't warp. Doesn't warp, and then make sure that it is. Uh, there's no dust, because that can get into the grooves and mess things up. And then you have to think about things like how tightly do you store your records? You have to store them vertically. What What, what is the, the, the deal on that, by the way? Because I know that you've got a basement filled with vinyl from the old CFNY music library. There, there's a discussion about whether or not you want to stack music uh, in vinyl format um, on, on its edge or on its flat surface. Definitely on its edge. And you just don't want to pack them in too tightly because, again, that could create warping issues. Ah. The other thing you have to think about is what kind of sleeve oh. are the records stored in? It should be paper if you can because some of the polyethylene sleeves that uh, were used for a time in the 80s can actually uh, degrade. Right. And that plastic can go into the grooves and that you can't get that out. So if you have a vinyl collection, you want to remove those plastic sleeves. The, there's a particular type of plastic sleeves. This they look like baggies. Yeah, yeah. They they need to be taken out because they can, especially if you're touring, if you're uh, storing the records too tightly together, mm -hmm. you can basically press the uh, the sleeve in into the grooves, and and you ruin your record. You and I have known each other for what about eight years or so now? No, it's longer. Than longer that. than that. 
every year I drop this big hint from the CFNY library that you've now got stored in your basement, I am still pushing you. For what? For you to give me the CFNY copy of The Cure's Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. I don't know if I have that one. I'll go look. All right. I'll go look. My birthday's in November. All right. I'll see if I got it. So what happened with you, Universal Music was in 2008, not only did they deny that there was any major problem, but once they settled with the insurance company for $150 million, they didn't tell the artists. That's right. And that's uh, one of the allegations in the lawsuit. And they're asking for 50% of that plus unspecified damages. That doesn't seem like a hell of a lot, particularly considering, as you point out, that if you want to reissue something, you would go back to the masters. If you wanted to remix something, you would go back to the multi-track recordings. But the masters are the ones that are the most important. If you want to cash in on the popularity of an artist who's resurfaced after a, a bunch of years, or if you're just trying to cash in on the... The, what was the, the catalog is what you're the trying catalog. to catalog. Yeah. All record labels have huge, huge archives where they, and they don't even know what they have, to be honest, because these archives have not been treated kindly over the decades. Well, clearly, if you've got a giant warehouse where they're storing part of the facade of the courthouse from Back to the Future alongside these original masters that date back to the 1940s. Clearly, there's somebody who needs to be called to account. I was actually shocked when I realized that these tapes were being held in in on a movie lot. Right. Like, like the Vatican, for example, has a remarkable vault system for all of these ancient texts that go back literally 2,000 years. And you would think that they would put the same kind of archival-related infrastructure in place to handle not only music, but the films that they have too. Well, the films are a bigger problem because the old film stock was uh, that nitrate stuff that is hugely, highly flammable. So that stuff had to be transferred to a new medium because that stuff was was a fire hazard. What started this in the first place was they were redoing the roof and they laid down the, the tar paper for it. You heat it up and then by the rules, you have to wait an hour before you can leave because you don't want hot spots to flare up and maybe catch fire. Mm -hmm. 43 minutes after they walked away from the requisite one hour wait, that's when the fire started. Yeah, it was about five o'clock in the morning and uh, it just got, it was really hard to put out too. They had to knock down a whole bunch of walls. And I would have assumed all of this would have been stored digitally by this point. Well, a lot of those tapes have been backed up. They, they were digitized, um, so they're not completely lost. I mean, to have a fire go, you know, ravage a bunch of tapes in 2008, which is well into the digital era, most of that stuff had been digitized. But again... It's not the original copy. See what I'm saying? It's kind of like, yeah, I've got a reprinting of the book. I've got a reprinting of the uh, Heidelberg Bible, but it's not the, the, the real one. You know what I'm saying? Well, I do know what you're saying because guys like you will swear up and down that vinyl is a far more viable medium to listen to a song than a compact disc. So I would certainly hope that back in 2008 that they used a high enough 
a data per second sort of rate to be able to capture as much of the range of those. Well, what they would have done is they would have used 96 kilohertz, 24 bit sampling. But that doesn't sound like enough. Like now we've got 256. Well, no, 96 kilohertz, 24 bit sampling is twice what you get with a, um, it's twice what you get with a, with a CD. So you're confident that John Coltrane, Sammy Davis Jr., and Chuck Berry have been at least backed up to a high enough version of MP3? No, I'm not. Oh. See, that's the problem. Uh, these would be high-end WAV files or FLAC files. I have no idea. And that's, that's what this lawsuit is all about. What was actually lost? To what extent did the loss go? And how are you going to compensate us for being such doofuses about the whole thing? The thing is, is I'm not so concerned about the loss of the masters of music that we already have. I'm more concerned about the unreleased masters by some of the greatest artists of all history. Yeah, and that's another issue too. Again, record labels want to go back into their archives, into the catalog to find out stuff that uh, they, they, for whatever reason, have been sitting on or had forgotten about for all these decades. These, these, maybe there's a, a live recording that was recorded and mastered and never released for some reason. Or there was something that was lost and, and it takes a while to, to go through all the tapes. And, oh, wait, wait, we have this, you know, dated 1956 that uh, for whatever reason escaped our, our attention back then before all these mergers. Because again, Universal is the result of, the mer of a merger of a lot of different record companies. So it's very possible they have no idea what they inherited when they went through all these different mergers. So my concern is that, you know, my daughter at age 13 grows up. She's in her late 30s. She becomes, for some reason, society gets really hooked on Snoop Dogg. Mm -hmm. And suddenly there's a renewed interest in this ancient rapper slash pothead. And... They go back to find the masters and learn that, no, those masters back in 2008 burned up and now they can't cash in mm -hmm. on the renewed interest in what at the time I'm sure they will call classic rap. <laughs> yeah. That, again, that's the problem. If you want to have a resurrection of a particular artist, a particular album, the first place you go is the vault where the master tapes reside. Along with the master tapes, you hope maybe that the multi-track tapes are there as well, because then you can remix and remaster using modern technology, making the tapes sound better than they did back in the day. And with this fire, who knows what we will never be able to experience. Now, this would be a good time to segue, since we're talking about master tapes, mm -hmm. to talk about this whole Taylor Swift thing. There's a lot of confusion about it. Ugh. I got dumped by Jake Gyllenhaal last year, so I bought this hipster voodoo doll with a beard. I'm stabbing him right in his Jillen balls. Still, he won't return my calls. Why? I'm calling just to say that I moved on with my life. This will be the last time that I call tonight. Do you mind if I sleep on your lawn? I say I love you. We hate some depression. We were never, ever, ever actually together. Sweetie, remember, 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 smoking crack together. We ate chalk and did bath salts and had sex with the tree. Um, we have never, ever, ever done any of that together. 
Okay, first of all, I'm really not up to speed on this other than I had read a New York Times piece that suggested that Taylor Swift is cashing in on her victimization approach to the world. Yes, I will go with that. Okay, let, let's, let me start from the beginning. I'll explain this whole thing. Yeah. Taylor Swift was part of a company called Big Machine. Big Machine was owned by a guy named Scott Borchetta. And Scott Borchetta acted as her manager and record label head, and he is the guy that signed her, groomed her, and helped Taylor Swift become the superstar that she is. If it wasn't for him, she wouldn't be someone we'd be talking about today. Very possible. Now, when you sign a record deal, it is, like we mentioned earlier, almost completely de rigueur that the master tapes are owned by the record label because they pay for it. They give you an advance to record the album and what they want in return are the master tapes because they are the exclusive distributor and marketer of that music. Explain to me then what the what the financial relationship is that gives them the control over the masters. For every dollar's worth of that master song that makes it out into the world, what percentage would an artist keep versus the record label that gives them the ability to say, this is owned by us, even though you came up with it? Let me let me go through the whole thing and you'll see how this all plans out, okay. how this all plays out. So the record label owns the master tapes. That gives them the right to copy and manufacture and distribute the music on behalf of the artist. That's what the contract says. I'm signing a contract with you. I will provide you with music. And your job is to market that music to the benefit of both parties. Got that? So uh, Big Machine owned Taylor Swift's master tapes. That means they have the the... the the Ur recordings of six albums. There's Taylor that Ur again. Yeah, I know. Taylor Swift owns the publishing of all that music. The publishing is what you want. The publishing is where you make all your money. Not from the master tapes, unless you decide in concert with the person that owns them to do a reissue or a box set or something like that. So what it means is that for every time of a, a Taylor Swift song gets sold or played, she's getting a piece of that action. Oh, a huge piece of it. And she owns the publishing, not Big Machine. It's not the masters that get you the money. No. It's the publishing rights. So what is she bitching about? Well, again, and, and the the you can't do anything with the masters without the publishing rights. Without the publishing, without without the consent of the person who owns the publishing. So even though she doesn't own the masters, she owns the right to, to decide what happens to the masters. Because she owns the music that consists of the, 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 the that consists of the masters. So this sounds like she's making a mountain out of a molehill. Completely, hundred percent. The issue is that Big Machine was up for sale. She was apparently offered an opportunity to buy the masters, which she didn't tell anybody about when she complained. No. Uh, everybody knew that Big Machine was up for sale, including Taylor Swift's father, who was a shareholder. Right. And you do not engage in a $300 million sale, which is how much Big Machine was sold for, without informing your shareholders. Or your daughter. Who is a daughter of the shareholder, right? <laughs> or you're, it's she's also the biggest asset on the label. Something tells me she's going to turn this into at least a song, if not an album by itself. Oh, absolutely. And she's upset that these master tapes, which no one can do anything with without her permission. It's not like the new owners can take it and say, hey, I'm gonna sell this uh, this song to 
to some shampoo company for a TV commercial. No, she has to give the approval to that. Nothing can be done with these masters without her approval. The only thing that could happen down the road is, again, box set or reissue, and then they would have to work with her anyway because she's got the publishing. She owns the rights to the music that consists of the masters. So her big thing is that she she says she wasn't allowed to buy the masters, which is crap because there's all kinds of... Uh, there's a paper trail, an email trail, then text trail that goes all the way back to August of 2018 that says that, yes, she had the opportunity. Um, her thing is that she doesn't like the new owner. Right. Her, her argument was that this was the guy who led to so many tears over the course of the first 10 years of her career. Yeah, Scooter Braun. He's the uh, manager of a whole bunch of people, Selena Gomez and Justin Bieber and a whole bunch of others. He's like, like that, that is an industry known for its snakes and thieves. Like, Is he one of those? There's no snakes and thieves here. Uh, Scott Borchetta, who owned everything to do with Taylor Swift's uh, career, as per her contracts, uh, made it known that the, country, the company was available for sale. He did sell it to a company called Ithaca Holdings, which is controlled by Scott Braun, and uh, they're going to enter into some kind of partnership together to exploit whatever opportunities they may have as a result of this new company. Uh, Taylor is upset that somebody who bullied her on, in, on on Instagram and on Twitter or whatever, or so she says, owns her life's work. No, he owns the masters. You still control the music. There's nothing he can do with those master tapes without your permission. So don't go crying that, oh, my God, I've lost my music. I'm never going to be able to do anything with all this hard work that I've done. No, it's not what happened. It sounds like we just spent the last seven minutes talking about something that could have been wrapped up in seven seconds. She sounds like a sociopath. Well, no, listen, she manages herself now. She's a big girl. She's 29 years old. She's worth probably $400 million. She could have, in some way or another, purchased these tapes if she wanted to put the money down. Uh, she was offered an opportunity. Okay, here's how it gets weird. So Big Machine, it was an independent label who had a deal with Universal for um, marketing and distributing Taylor's music. Got that? Mm -hmm. uh, so there was already a relationship with Universal Music. Big Machine is sold um, to Scott Borchetta. Or sorry, uh, Big Machine is sold to uh, Ithaca Holdings. Still, it's, it's, it's connected with uh, Universal Music. Taylor, by the way, we should note, uh, last November elected not to re-sign with Big Machine. Instead, re -sign, it was signing a big deal with Republic Records, which is an imprint of, yes, Universal Music. So she just kind of changed teams. She kind of changed intramural teams is what basically happened here. Mm. She could have, and based on what I've read, she could have re-signed with Big Machine for however many millions of dollars. And at that point, Scott Borchetta says that she could have acquired all Taylor Swift assets had she re-signed with Big Machine. So all her pictures, all her, you know, all the IP, everything, if she had signed with Big Machine. And for every new album that she delivered to Big Machine, she would get the master tapes back automatically, starting with her first record. So she, if she released six more albums, she would get six old albums back in terms of master tape ownership. And at the end of it all, she would own everything. So my, like, shut up. You're just, you know, you're trying to be, you're trying to pro uh, project yourself 
as as a victim in this, and right. you're not. I mean, you're you're you you're making a huge amount of money with the New Republic deal. You continue to make a huge amount of money with the publishing, and you can't do anything. And Scott, um, Scooter Braun can't do anything with the masters without your say so. So what's the problem other than oh, I was wronged? And then, you know, all the Swifties are coming out. Says, oh, you know, poor Taylor. I, you know, I'm going to go up and buy three albums. Well, yeah, go ahead. Buy three albums. You know what that means? You're just going to give Taylor three times the uh, three times the money that you would have normally given her. It's it's not it's, it's not going to Ethical Holdings. It's going to Taylor because she owns the publishing. They call them Swifties? Yeah, they call them Swifties. Oh, God. Wait, here come the emails. Watch. Time now for a Geeks and Beats update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. So are you super excited? We have locked a date and a location down for the big live on location fundraiser to send us to CES 2020. Well, this is rather interesting. Yes, it's. Uh, I'm quite surprised uh, that we managed to get somebody so quickly and we're going to do it on a Friday night, which is nice. Better yeah. than a Sunday night when nobody, you know, comes out, goes out. Uh, so great. Yeah. Weather details. Go ahead. August 23rd, we will be broadcasting live onto the Internet from the Black Lab Brewery, which is a dog-friendly venue. I'm bringing a dog. Yeah. You, you brought a dog to the last big event you went to, didn't you? Did I? Yeah, I thought. Oh, oh, oh sorry. You, you, there, there's a big Cosmo oh. music thing. Going no, no, on. I'm gonna. I'm going to bring a dog to that. Ah, okay, all right. So you can bring the pooch. Uh, are you gonna bring schmooze? Or are you gonna bring? Uh, It'll be schmooze. Schmooze is the. Uh, she's the beer drinker, and she's much more. <laughs> she's the more social of the two. What kind of dog? English bull terrier. English bull terrier. Of course, it was a beer drinker. Then that makes total sense. So the twenty third of August, which is a Friday night, we are going to do the show live on location. And my favorite part about this is we're going to open it up to the audience to do a Q and A after, because I know that when you do these big events where you go out and do a keynote speech, you open up the microphone and you spend three hours talking with the audience about all things music. And I think we need to take advantage of that because that should be a lot of fun yes i'm i'm really you know these things are, are are really really cool by the time we um do this i will have returned from my uh my western swing so i'll be ready it'll be nicely rested it'll be about a month since my last appearance this way so i'll be ready to go bright-eyed and bushy-tailed absolutely we were at the music fan expo we had people lining up to talk to you. You know, I, I like to joke that for every person who talked to me, 10 people talked to you. And But that's really not a joke. That was the actual ratio. And I'm okay with that um, because it wasn't like we were doing a stock market thing. No. And I think that this will be a great opportunity because we did have people drive in from places like Ottawa, Ontario, yes. to come see you and, and turn it into a weekend kind of event, that this will be an excellent opportunity as well, since we'll do it on a Friday night. You can drive into Toronto, stay overnight, turn it into a, you know, a, a hubby and wifey kind of getaway weekend sort of thing. Mm. So the question becomes, what time should we start the big event? Uh, hmm. I think 8 o'clock is, is adequate. I'm thinking 8 o'clock, too, because if you're going to be driving in from elsewhere, we want to have it a little bit later so that you got time to get in and settle in. And we've already landed not one but two guests for the big live show. And they are? Ed the Sock. 
He was supposed to be with us last year. Right. And uh, unfortunately, Ed had uh, issues that prevented him from joining us. But uh, he'll be joining us this time around, so long as those issues don't flare up again. And the uh, former Alanis Morissette music producer, Brent Bodrug, is going to come in, and he's going to break down another music track like he's been doing for us for the past few years. Good. That'll be a fun time. We need to figure out what music track we should assign him to break down for us. Oh, okay. So maybe we should let the listener make that decision? Uh, sure. Or, you know, maybe it's something that he's worked on or he has intimate knowledge with. True. Alanis Morissette might not be a bad idea. No, it might not be. Like, um, But, yeah, but really, I, 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 since this is going to be an audience interactive kind of a thing... I sort of think that we should open it up and let people suggest particular tracks. Sure, why not? My personal favorite, the one that I think that we need to break down, Take On Me by Aha. Oh, God. Really? All right. Well, actually, you know, that's not such a bad idea because there are some things about that song that a lot of people aren't aware of. For example, I think it has, I think it has the longest example of a singer holding a single note. Really? Yes. See? And on top of that, we know that it was a massive 1980s music video experience as well. Yes. And since we'll be broadcasting the show live, we'll have video component to it as well, so we can show part of it too without getting our asses sued. Okay. And the neat thing is, is that because it's going to be video, we've got lots of plans for that audience interactive kind of thing. You can actually be on the show. And the biggest complaint we got about the last live show we did was that we did it on Facebook and that some of our listeners aren't Facebook users. Well, Facebook is falling from grace. It is. So the neat thing is, is that if I'm willing to swallow the insane cost associated with it, we will simulcast on multiple channels. So we'll do YouTube. Uh -huh. Facebook, mm. Twitter, okay. LinkedIn. So wherever you LinkedIn. are. LinkedIn? I know. I was waiting to see what you say to that. All right. Well, okay. But that Those are my people. No, they, they, yes, that's true. Your people are on Twitter. My people are on LinkedIn. Right. That's that's very true. So the neat thing is, is Livestream.com has the ability to multicast. So we'll be able to put this out to a bunch of different uh, targets so that even if you aren't a Facebook user, you'll still be able to join us live if you don't come down to the actual Black Lab Brewery in the first place, which should be a lot of fun. It's in the up-and-coming Leslieville district of Toronto. Okay. Well, let's see what we got. And that was Vanessa. She did that? Vanessa hooked us all up. Our uh, big shot producer managed to pull this all together, and she's going to continue to get it all set up for us as well, including locking in a third guest, um, which may prove to be, and, and I don't want to upset our longtime fan slash friend of the show, Chef Mike Benninger, mm -hmm. but because of the location, the venue has its relationships with chefs. Oh, of course, yes. So we may have to go with their chef. Right. I understand. Whoever that guy is as our local celebrity chef for that episode. Mm. They also do things where they, they have nights where, because they don't actually do food themselves, and if you're selling alcohol, you have to provide food as well. They have relationships with the food truck industry. Ooh. So they've got all these hipster food trucks that are parked out front to provide the food for those who are getting all liquored up inside. I like that. I was at an event in Winnipeg recently where they had lots of food trucks outside. 
And uh, there's just something, I don't know. I'm a big fan of food truck food. So it's possible that we're not going to have our longtime friend on the big show. And, and I, I feel kind of kind of bad about that. But it'll be interesting to, to, to try some new things. Okay. Well, onward, upward, let's evolve. We want to say thank you to uh, our patrons on Patreon.com who've made it all possible for us to be able to bring you this show every single week. I pulled it up on the big list. We want to say goodbye to Rob Frimmer or Frimmer. We, we talked about that a while back. He set a lifetime limit on the Patreon of $403 with a $1 per episode pledge. He just pulled the plug on his relationship and jumped to our new PayPal recurring payment oper- option. So we want to say thank you to Rob. We want to say again thank you to Chef Mike, who is top of our list on our active patron list, alongside Greg David, Mark Wagner, Philip Mueller, Antoinette Van Den Dickenberg, Microsurf, Mike McDonald, Roland Wood, Adrian Bashford, C. Scott, Michael Rosario, Sheila McMahon, and Tim Heron, among others. Tim messaged me to say, hey, I'm throwing you guys five bucks via Patreon. Should we switch over to the PayPal? Like, listen, whatever works for you, that's all that matters. It's a really nice list. I'm, I'm actually very touched by that. There's a whole bunch more on that list as well, including on our PayPal list, Craig Manette, Grant Ridge, Robin Calder, Kevin Button, Paul Naden, Victor Biggio, Jeremy Porter, Dave Duva, Helen Murray, Stefan Dubord, Crystal Brown John, Emma Borsellino as well. Thank you so much for supporting The Big Show because we are doing this live show as a means of raising funds to send us to CES 2020. That's going to be a big one. Yeah, I've already got the time blocked off, so... Excellent. Yes. Block off a bunch of days, because what I'm hoping we can do is whore you out. I'm going to do uh, a whole week there. Excellent. Book it for a whole week, because what we're hoping to do is, in addition to getting support from our listeners, is land a big patron, a big sponsor, who we can then turn that into an opportunity for you, and to a much lesser extent, me, show up at one of those sponsor events and do one of those big keynotes that you like to do in that William Shatner style that you did when you and Shat toured Canada, where you asked him questions. I really do like the idea, so let's see what we can do. Just don't talk like this the whole time. (laughs) Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Or stream us live at geeksandbeats.com. Support the show on Patreon and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for a daily dose of the world's most popular podcasts with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.